wasn't even the start. <laughs> <laughs> that was just that was just a smattering of games, like a smattering of rose petals on the path toward Nat's actual recommendations. Exactly. I'm I'm sprinkling <laughs> pixelated petals along the path for you to follow. Yes. <laughs> Collect all 12 and you'll get a reward of 16 coins. <laughs> <laughs> this is Queers at the End of the World Presents, because every time a queer enjoys another queer's media creation, somewhere in the time stream, a cop quits his job. So back when we were doing our episodes on The Last of Us 1 and 2, Nina and I got into a bunch of side conversations about other video games that I like or see queer potential in. Mm -hmm. We talked a lot about what more explicitly queer games might feel like to play. This Queers at the End of the World Presents builds off that question, and I'm bringing you recommendations for four games with much to say about queer identity, utopia, dystopia, and the ever-popular Abandoned Mall. You know, before I get into um, talking about some of the games I'm recommending, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, just games generally. And Nina, I know you used to play video games when you were younger, or at least I know you used to watch your brothers play video games. And I was curious, what were some of your favorites or what are some of the ones that stuck in memory and that immediately come to mind even now? Part of why when I talk about video games, I talk about my brother so much is that I think for the longest time, I thought of video games as like only like console games and games that you play with like a controller and a joystick, you know? And after we talked about The Last of Us and I was thinking about it more and realizing how much the sort of way people interface with games has changed, it makes me realize like I actually kept on playing video games and I was always playing video games kind of outside of that specific context of like the N64 in our attic. But like on my own, I would play a lot of like adventure games and and things like I really loved this game the longest journey it had this like funny binary concept where it was like a science world and a myth world the two genders science and magic (laughs) that's great though i loved adventure games when i was a kid too and i feel like one of the truths about video games is there's actually so so many great games out there and you know if you get outside the mentality of like a big budget playstation game there's just so much stuff to play so much stuff that feels deliciously queer and so much stuff that if it doesn't feel deliciously queer is just deliciously satisfying are there any that you have been playing lately or have you found yourself too busy to enjoy the pleasure that is playing video games Basically, I've only played like queer games that you recommended, Nat, (laughs) and they've they've been really good, but like it's been a while and I think I keep sort of like looking at like used consoles and being like, I could do that. I could totally learn how to do that. So it's in the future, but it's not in the present. For sure. I mean, and the other thing that's always true is you have to be careful because if you get sucked into a game that's too appealing, it can co-opt 100% of your free hours. Yeah, that was like my entire high school situation with civilization. Oh my gosh, that is a moment. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm going to talk about some games and, you know, the games I'm going to talk about are maybe a little bit more indie than a lot of the games that you would typically see in popular media. That's not to say that I don't see queer potential in bigger budget, more commercial titles, 
In fact, the queer video game scholar Bo Ruberg, whose work I absolutely love, talked about this in their scholarly book, Video Games Have Always Been Queer. They do some amazing queer readings of games that are not at all intended to be queer stories, but are ones that by looking at them through a queer lens, we can kind of claim under the, I guess, umbrella of queerness. So there are tons that have this feeling of rich queer possibility. I wanted to mention a couple. Um, Octodad, which we actually, I think, have talked about before. Yeah. <laughs> In Octodad, you play as a secret octopus trying to pass as a suburban dad. The old queer cephalopod. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's so much with that. It's a really cool game. Um, and then there's Hollow Knight, which was a big favorite of mine. The protagonist in Hollow Knight is an agender, abyss-born, void-animated bug shell who wanders oh. the dark world of Hollow Nest, solving problems and seeking to resist a threatening force called the Radiant. Oh. I love that even just for flipping the idea of like, you know, dark, bad, light, good on its head. Like even right there, I'm like, oh, that's going to be queer. It's really wonderful. But you know, aside from games that we can do queer readings of, there are also a ton of game makers out there creating video games that include explicitly queer content. Some of the classics you may already have heard of are the emotionally evocative first-person pseudo-horror game Gone Home. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. Another common touchpoint for this is Dream Daddy. That is a dating sim where you play as a dad and your goal is to meet and romance other hot dads. <laughs> what? It's so awesome and it has beautiful art and it's just a wonderful game. Aside from some of these queer video game canon touch points. There are a whole host of incredible queer indie folks who have long been making rad interactive media that you should totally check out. Um, folks like Anna Anthropy, Maddie Bryce, Diedrich Squinkifer, Naomi Clark, and Robert Yang. Um, in fact, there's actually a whole convention, the Queerness in Games Conference, that celebrates queer games and their makers, and their website, QGCon.com, is a great way to get leads on names of both game makers and the games themselves. So let's get into the games. I am bringing you recommendations of five different games that fill me personally with joy and excitement. Some of them are explicitly queer. Others give themselves to queer readings. All of them are super interesting examples of uh, interactive media. Cool. So the first game is Diaries of a Spaceport Janitor. <laughs> this self-described anti-adventure video game is probably the most dystopian of the four. It was released by the very, very indie developer collective Sunday Month in 2016. And I found out about it when I met one of the developers, a non-binary nerd like me, who also seemed to find group socializing both appealing and awkward at an after party at IndieCade, the LA-based indie media festival that some of the most exciting indie video games come through before hitting commercial success. So just picture this whole situation I'm in. <laughs> Diaries of a Spaceport Janitor had won an award resulting in the conferral of this bizarre and big and kind of like wonderful DIY trophy made of bits of wood and bolts and metal. And I remember <laughs> having this honest conversation with the developer about how impossible it was going to be to get the damn thing home. <laughs> Just the sense of queer joy and shared practicality I felt in that conversation was so powerful. <laughs> They're like, what do you mean? I'm just going to clip it to my belt. It's going to be fun. <laughs> After meeting them, I knew this game was going to be good. And I was not disappointed when I finally sat down to play it. 
So, in Diaries of a Spaceport Janitor, you play as an Allen C. girl beast with a <laughs> municipally subsidized trash incineration job. Right. Your quest, which you've essentially been forced to accept by the game, is to clean up the spaceport where you live while also trying to rid yourself of this incredibly annoying floating skull who you picked up in a below-ground dungeon who now hovers around your head at all times, staring at you and occasionally screaming. <laughs> so, you know, whatever metaphor you want to think of that skull as being like dysphoria or patriarchy or anxiety or personal trauma... Like it super works. It's it's just it's so beautiful and so poignant. And even better, there is a fairly standard video game procedure for banishing this damn skull. But the catch in Diaries of a Space War Janitor is that you rarely have enough resources or free time to make progress on the quest. <sighs> so janitorial income is paltry, days are short. And you've got to eat and also change genders. <laughs> so yes, one of the mechanics in this game is gender dysphoria. On a semi-regular basis, the whole game goes wonky until you can find one of the terminals in the spaceport that allows you to purchase a nice new gender. What I love about this element of the game is it's kind of part of the world, but it's not fetishized with transness being this like visual and social circus objectified for an entertainment audience. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I, I got a little bit of that vibe from some of the promo I saw for the recent title, Cyberpunk 2077, um, yeah. which I haven't played. I'm looking forward to playing it, but this really doesn't give off that feeling of anxiety about what gender queerness or transness means in the game. It's just part of the world that you live in. It's supported by the game systems. It's part of how you interact it's not good or bad. It's just part of who your character is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And in fact, there is an aspect of it that feels negative because you have to spend money buying gender. And money, in fact, is this resource in, in the game that you never have enough of. So it's actually really more of a game about poverty than it is about gender. Yeah, but poverty and transness, as we know, statistically often go hand in hand. And it's kind of an it's a super under talked about thing, right? Like people are like, trans people need to be seen. And it's like, yes. And also trans people need to be paid and housed and, you know, have money to get food and clothing and all that. So yeah, 100%. Totally. 100%. I know. It's just coming from a place of understanding those relationships. So there is a sense of beauty in it and in, in what the game sees and a sense of kind of finding a different kind of freedom in this kind of life you're playing out as this municipal worker inhabiting the world of the spaceport while others go off world to enjoy more epic and important adventures. Mm. You work out deals with local merchants, have your money stolen by cops, mm -hmm. <laughs> canvas the markets for food you can actually afford, um, and sort of build a life from the trash you pick up. And um, what unfolds essentially is this video game narrative of heroism giving way to a different type of specialness, which mm -hmm. I would say is the queer ability to accommodate and love all that's hidden and niche and strange and beautiful in the face of seeming entrappedness. Dude, that sounds amazing. <laughs> you should play it. <laughs> I can't wait to play it. Also, I feel like there are aspects of it that is like the game of life for me. So I know like making life out of trash part. Definitely a speciality of mine. <laughs> it, it is definitely not something I would term as like escapist 
Yeah, but the idea of the actual like innovation and genius that people have to exercise in order to live in poverty is like totally heroic. And it's really cool to think about a game valorizing that and having that be loved and also like intersectionality. It sounds amazing. I know. <laughs> All of that. It's, it's, it's totally worth checking out. And the next one is Kind Words, a 2019 release that for me feels like a kind of utopian project. In fact, the design idea underlying the scheme is so hopeful that when I read the description, I thought, this cannot possibly work. <laughs> so the idea in Kind Words is that it allows you to write and respond to anonymous letters, sort of like an internet forum, except the point is supposed to be that you quote unquote, use your words to lift others and be lifted in return. Hmm. Like the opposite of an internet forum. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, you know, I thought like, how could this possibly work because people are so primed to interact the other way? Hmm. But as it turns out from what I've read, the beautiful soundtrack to the game, it's lovely visual design and a few sweet and cozy mechanics like the ability to trade stickers have apparently been enough to cue a vast majority of users to play in alignment with the game's goals. So apparently people really do write down their fears and confusions and sadnesses and send heartfelt messages in response to the requests and thoughts and soul-searching meanderings of other people. Really, really impressive that the game somehow managed to cue an anonymous internet public to do this. Mm. <laughs> but Polygon called this game the most moving game of the year, and countless reviewers have said kind words, changed their lives, lifted them up, and made them cry with joy. I admit, this is the one on this list that I haven't played and that is purely because I do a lot of emotional co-processing in real life already. I was totally it thinking that when you were describing this. I was like, this sounds amazing, but also like my friends. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. I, I mean, I think you and I in particular really enjoy this type of stuff and are probably both involved in a lot of um, sending text messages back and forth to help like talk the people we love and care about through their own like samsaras. <laughs> I really just love that the studio that made this created an interactive multimedia experience that extends this practice and kind of offered it up to anyone who wants to play to sort of try out that amateur therapist role. Well, I just love that. I mean, it also sort of proves that it can be done too. I mean, I think there's a lot of like to look at the internet and to be like, to like believe that you could set up conditions where it would be full of kindness is a pretty brave thing to set out to do. I know there is this dimension to the internet and anonymous people inside the world of games that seems intimidating and scary. Mm -hmm. And I think the reality is that there's all kinds of people out there and there's all kinds of impulses out there in every person. And systems can be designed to call for complexity and sweetness and secrets and mutual care. Mm. And I'm just fascinated by kind words as a place where some folks are playing with that. Awesome. So this next one, I have to warn folks listening, is one of those games that can suck you into hours of mindless play. I finally bought it so I could check it out for this list of recommendations. And in the last, like, I would say week or two, pretty much all of my downtime has been sucked into its incredibly bright, incredibly happy, incredibly cute world. So the name of the game is Ooblets. 
<laughs> I can see it already. <laughs> I mean, it's literally like, imagine a game that combines Animal Crossing, Stardew Valley, and Pokemon. It's extreme. It's your job to grow plants, get to know villagers, and most importantly, gather up a crew of very adorable ooblets who are these small cartoonish creatures native to the region. Importantly, ooblets like to challenge each other to dance-offs. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. It's, it is really that cute. And there is a little bit of pretty much every type of tippy-tappy idle gaming joy in this game, from building friendships with villagers, to crafting resources, to fishing, to inventory management, to daily quests, to decorating your home. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a lot. Okay, but Nat, I feel like I've heard you talk a whole lot of smack about Stardew Valley and all those games, because it's like you think that you're living a happy life on Happy Island, but it's actually a capitalist hell where you trade your precious life for pixel turnips. Yeah, and Ooblitz is also sort of a capitalist hell, but I'm still recommending it, I guess in part because I really enjoy games like this. And I know a lot of other people do too, so I can't totally dismiss the universal queer joy in, in games like this. I mean, even though resources accumulate in these games and it's possible to get powerful and rich, you're still powerless in the face of the endless march of the system, which always gives you another chore. And amidst video game chores, I personally mm. have had meaningful and evocative and very lovely experiences, many of which have been situations and interactions and moments that accommodate the inevitability and the pointlessness and the shared strangeness of capitalist toil. When it comes down to it, though, Ooblets is just, like, really fun. It's not a game that addresses identity and transness and labor in the nuanced way that Diaries of a Spaceport Janitor does. It's much more of a, here's as much candy as your brain can possibly eat. <laughs> <laughs> There's no explicitly queer narratives here. Um, although I will say that the mayor of the town that you live in is a rainbowy Girl Scout who gives you badges for doing things like being kind and looking fabulous. <laughs> so, you know, you can do the reading without a lot of effort. <laughs> I also personally have a particular queer itch that's scratched by games that level you up in other things besides getting married. Like, in this game, processing bean juice and collecting ooblet accessories like tiny witch hats. <laughs> and also i love a game that normalizes living alone on a farm with a bunch of non-human creatures hell yes so, the only false note here is that one of the denizens of the town is a tall white mustachioed cop who definitely freaks me out whenever he walks by but overall ooblets is a compulsively cute game that will provide you with like i said hours of candy bright escapism in the land of pointless video game chores that somehow feel crucially important <laughs> So I, I have one more for you. And this final game, I I just, I feel like I have to bring this up, even though this game is not out yet, because it's so awesome. It, it does everything. It's not exactly dystopian, but it does include a really rad abandoned mall okay. and also several non-binary characters. Um, and basically the entire situation the game puts you in just feels incredibly satisfyingly queer. Ooh. And I've been excited about it forever. I found out about it in late 2019, and I've just been waiting for this game to drop. 
So I've never been a huge fan of dating sims. If you like dating sims, there are tons of queer dating sims out there that are excellently written and beautifully illustrated and accommodate complexity and consent with grace. But if I was ever to be talked into playing a dating sim, it would be the last game I'm recommending here, which is Boyfriend Dungeon. Boyfriend Dungeon is a dating sim grafted to a roguelike. And if you don't know what a roguelike is, it's essentially a procedurally generated game level that's different every time. So Hmm. it creates kind of endless hours of gameplay because every time you enter the dungeon or enter the level or whatever, the computer creates the level for you and populates it with enemies. In Boyfriend Dungeon specifically, you get to alternate between that type of gameplay, which in this case, you're actually in a mall and you're trying to kill mostly non-human um, like computers and bugs and like clothing racks are attacking you because the mall is abandoned and it's your <laughs> summer job to clear out the mall. And then uh, on the B side, you're in this dating sim. And the key for us holding these two separate game styles together is that in Boyfriend Dungeon, you get to date your weapons. What? what that means is every time in the dungeon you find a new sword or dagger or glaive or brass knuckles or whatever, they transform in the dating sim part into an actual person that you can get to know and romance. <laughs> this is the best thing ever. As you become more and more friendly and intimate with each weapon, you unlock better moves and skills you can deploy when you have that weapon equipped in the dungeon. <laughs> it's the best. <laughs> Even better. These weapons come in a variety of genders, including not one, but two different non-binary characters, which I freaking love because obviously there are some queers working on that game who are like, non-binary character is not going to be a token non-binary person. We're going to have multiple of these. So good. (laughs) Person or glaive. (laughs) Exactly. But it just feels like just full of joy and possibility and fun and It was supposed to be out in 2020 on Switch, but like every video game ever, it's taking longer than they expected to finish it. We'll just have to wait to see when it lands, hopefully sometime this year. So the dungeon is a mall and you find weapons there and then you date those weapons and then you develop like a beautiful symbiosis that allows you to defeat mall beasts. Exactly. That is a great summary. I love it. (laughs) I love it. Yes. Get on it. So that's the games I have. Obviously, that's just a very, very tiny selection of all of the games that could give you joy if you're looking for queer joy in playing video games. I wanted to just like super briefly recommend a couple of excellent books on queer video games that if you're um, a total nerd of this like me and you want to know more, you should check out. Heck yeah. So one of them is The Queer Games Avant-Garde, and it's another title by the inimitable Bo Ruberg that contains 22 interviews with different queer developers whose work is, according to the book, driving a momentous shift in the medium of video games. And there's also Rise of the Video Game Zinesters by Anna Anthropy, which is a book that argues you too can make a video game. And this art is by no means isolated to those with cash, education, and access to heteronormative privileges. And in fact, video games that are evocative of the zine aesthetic are some of my favorite ones to play. So if you do make a video game, you should totally tweet at this podcast or me on Twitter and share it because I want to play your games. Awesome. 
Well, Nat, so you were talking about games that kind of like pull you in and, you know, create this like whole kind of fully immersive experience. And I know that you actually just wrote an essay that was published on Edge Effects um, about playing a specific game like that in quarantine with your dad. And you should totally tell people about it. <laughs> Thanks, Nina. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did write a, a piece on Edge Effects, and I am so excited that the piece is live now. I actually got to work with one of our guests from here on the podcast, Juniper yes. Lewis. Yes, this is like a total Queers of the End of the World connection. I know. it's. I absolutely was so lucky to have Juniper as an editor and folks listening should check out Juniper's work and also listen to the other episode of Queers at the End of the World Presents where we featured um, a short interview with Juniper and pointed you guys to some great writing they have done about queer camping. Yeah. But I have this article out and it's about the game Satisfactory, which I explore in great detail in this essay and talk about just the potential for forging a bond and an emotional connection amidst a game system that's maybe not the first one I would recommend as a site of queer possibility, but <laughs> nevertheless offers some kind of really compelling, ensnaring style of gameplay. So we can um, throw the link for that in the show notes and send us a message on Twitter or Instagram or even email the podcast, queerworldspodcast at gmail.com. Keep the conversation alive. Let us know what you think. Did you play any of these games? Or um, what are your thoughts on queer joy or maybe being ensnared <laughs> in games like Ooblets and Satisfactory? I would love to hear from you. Listeners, you can find info on all of Nat's recommendations in the show notes, and you can find Nat's amazing new essay on the complexities of family and quarantine bonding through play on EdgeEffects at edgeeffects.net. It's such a beautiful essay. Please go check it out. And if you can't get enough game recommendations, or even if you just want to help support us in making this podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash queers at the end of the world, where for the low, low price of three bucks a month, you can get extras, including exclusive audio, essays, Nat performing poetry they co-wrote with the transcription software AI. It's a wonderland. It's a wonderland. So come join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash at the end of the world. And uh, a little bit of an announcement. Last thing is that I am going to be getting top surgery next week. Whoa, I'm getting top surgery next week. So we're going to take a little bit of a break um, while I'm recovering. And it's going to be a couple of more weeks than usual before our next episode comes out. That next episode, we're going to have a conversation about Station Eleven. It's going to include the novelist A.E. Osworth, whose new novel, We Are Watching Eliza Bright, just came out. That's going to be really fun and wonderful. So until then, until a few weeks from now, good luck out there, dear hearts. Thank you.